Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of the Center for the Advanced Study of India, or CASI, at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Gautam Nair, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow with CASI. We are delighted and honored to welcome today Dr. Farzana Afridi, who is an associate professor in the Economics and Planning Unit at the Indian Statistical Institute. She has published widely and influentially on a broad range of topics in labor and development economics, including gender and social identity, child development, health, and governance. Professor Afridi, thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Gautam. Uh, I should tell our listeners that we are recording remotely, so the audio quality may not be perfect. So today we will be discussing the gender division of labor at home, its impact on women's time allocation and economic participation in India. In the second part of our discussion, we will discuss interventions that might help to shape decision-making around women's uh, labor force participation and decision-making in the household. So, Professor Afidi, the larger puzzle motivating your research is the difference in how women's labor force participation changed over the course of the 20th century in the West in comparison to how it has changed more recently in developing countries like India that have experienced economic growth and rising education. So what is this puzzle? So what we uh, are finding in India in the last couple of decades or so is that there has been a steady decline in women's labor force participation, despite the fact that the last few decades saw some of the fastest rates of economic growth in India. Uh, we've had rates of growth which were came close to double digit uh, and averaged around 8% for uh, a substantive number of years. We've seen significant declines in fertility rates in India. So, uh, you know, in the last uh, few decades, fertility rates have declined from about four to almost replacement levels. And uh, we have also seen an increase in the educational attainment of women. So the, the gap between men's and women's educational attainment has declined also during the same period. And so given all of this, one would have expected to see an improvement in women's labor force participation because women are getting more educated. They should be getting uh, liberated from childbearing and childcare and other, uh, you know, uh, home production activities which tied them to the household. Uh, but instead, what we observe is a there is a decline in women's labor force participation from already abysmal levels. So uh, India's level of labor force participation is around 25% uh, or so. And it has declined by about 10 to 15 percentage points over this period when we've seen these rapid rates of economic growth and other accompanying factors which should have improved their labor force participation. And this is a puzzle because uh, if you look at the West, the Western experience, particularly, you know, if you look at the work by Claudia Golden and so on, when we're trying to understand what was happening in uh, the Western world with uh, uh, the dramatic improvements that one sees in educational attainment of women, uh, the graduation rates of women increased significantly in the 19th 60s, then you have the, uh, the the pill coming in because of which women were able to control their fertility, which allowed them then to uh, control the timing of birth and to stay on in school longer, to be able to join 
um, because you're able to control your fertility, the gaps between uh, the time you take off from work and when you give birth and then you join back, uh, those uh, gaps have been becoming smaller and smaller and uh, or rather shorter and shorter as opposed to what you observe for women in India because once they leave the labor force, the probability that they would be able to join back after marriage itself, uh, not just childbirth, uh, is very, very low. Uh, so given these enabling factors in the West, what we observed was uh, a big increase in the labor force participation of women, uh, which is quite unlike the experience that uh, India has had. Uh, and on one hand, you might think that this is not a puzzle, you know, if you talk, if, if you really think of the U-shaped hypothesis of Claudia Golden, which is that uh, as countries become, uh, as they transition from being poor to middle income to being rich, you first see a decline in women's labor force participation, it bottoms out, and then it starts increasing as the GDP per capita rises, right? So it's quite possible that uh, uh, India is uh, uh, in in that phase, in the in the transition phase, because of which uh, we are potentially seeing a bottoming out of women's labor force participation, and we might expect to see that it rises as the per capita GDP increases further. But I think what this point would miss is that if you uh, just you know uh, uh, look at the uh, relationship between uh, women's labor force participation levels and GDP per capita and uh, fit a quadratic relationship between these two variables, <clears throat> you will see that uh, even though there is a U-shape, India is an outlier in the sense that uh, its labor force participation rate is much lower than it should be for countries at similar levels of GDP per capita. So it's way off the fit, right? It's just, it's very below, it's very, it's much lower than that quadrilateral, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, U-shape that you see. So it's an outlier. Uh, and if you measured it in terms of education as well, India is an outlier. So uh, it, is, it, it may make sense that uh, to think that it is understandable why we have this uh, U-shape, but it certainly doesn't explain why India is an outlier when we compare India to other countries at similar uh, GDP levels, at, uh, with similar levels of GDP growth. Uh, and, and that, you know, potentially points us to some other factors which are holding women back from the uh, market world. So what are some uh, explanations, possible explanations for the, what you call the abysmal level of women's labor force participation in India? So I think one of the things that uh, one uh, needs to understand uh, carefully is how is time allocated within the family or within the household and how uh, and what implications that might have on uh, women's uh, division of time between the market and uh, work at home. And so traditionally what we know is that women disproportionately share uh, a larger burden of uh, home uh, production activities which include 
domestic chores, child care, elderly care, and so on. Right. So, uh, and 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 those uh, gendered differences in time allocation, uh, those norms might be more binding in some contexts as opposed to other contexts, and uh, and and so. Uh, in one of uh, in one particular paper that we that I've worked on, uh, we were along with co-authors. We were looking at trying to understand why uh, this overall decline that we see in women's labor force participation is being driven by married women in rural areas of India. So when we look at the overall labor force participation rate in India, it's declining. But the decline is being driven by rural areas and married women in particular uh, who are in, uh, you know, uh, uh, eight, about 18 to 45 age group, the more uh, the ones who are likely to have younger children, or children that they need to uh, take care of. And so uh, the hypothesis that we come up with essentially there is that uh, and and this and, and we observe this along with the fact that their educational attainment is increasing so in india you have also this very interesting phenomenon of the u shaped relationship between women's education and labor force participation so at low levels of women's education you have high labor force participation and then it dips and then it increases uh, when you at very high levels of education uh, so uh, there is this part of this relationship where as education increases, the labor force participation of women declines. And so uh, when we look at the time allocation of women within the household, what we observe is that as, uh, you know, one possibility is that uh, you're becoming more <coughs> productive at home because as your education goes up, your productivity at home increases, right? You're be able to uh, do the same uh, chores more efficiently, more effectively. You can also devote more time to childcare, to the education of your children. Uh, and not just that, but also in terms of the healthcare, for example, taking them for immunization, for doctor visits and so on and so forth. So you could, you're probably a more involved parent and a more effective, uh, effective parent, so to speak, right? And so as uh, the education attainment goes up, the productivity in household uh, uh, activities in the household work that they're doing is, is, is increasing. And then you're going to compare this with what is the productivity that women might have in the market, right? So I'm going to decide as an individual between staying at home and what are the returns that I would get from staying at home by allocating more time to home as opposed to allocating more time to the market. And so in the market, the returns are the wages that I would get. And at home, the returns are what I would get in terms of the investments that I might be making in my family. So that would be my children, their education attainment. So there are these long-term returns which you might discount to the present, right? And so our hypothesis there really is that what is happening is that the returns in the market are not matching with the returns that the women are getting from home because uh, we have to also understand here uh, what is happening to the uh, availability of jobs, availability of work for women as uh, agricultural opportunities are shrinking, uh, the contribution of 
agriculture to India's GDP has been declining. Um, if we just look at the statistics, we'll see that the labor force is moving larger and larger proportion of people are moving away from agriculture, though, of course, that might reverse now given this crisis. And so we have to think of ways in which we can, uh, you know, engage all the returning migrants uh, more productively, given that the avenues for uh, being productively engaged in agriculture are very limited. Uh, but going back to this issue here, um, so so uh, so the, the so if you if, if the returns of from agriculture are limited, and you are then going to look for uh, uh, jobs in other sectors, and uh, uh, that would most likely be given the levels of education of these women, which is mostly around secondary edu uh, uh, education, secondary, you know, like class eight and so on, grade eight, then you want to go for manufacturing jobs because you're not going to be able to fit into services, certainly not the formal services sector. And those manufacturing jobs are very limited. As we know, in our country, we have transitioned from agriculture to services and more or less bypassed manufacturing. So the availability of these jobs are limited to women. Availability of these jobs close to their homes are limited for these women. So uh, given the fact that uh, the, these job availability is, the job availability is limited, uh, potentially there could be discrimination in the labor market in terms of the wages paid to women as opposed to the wages paid to men. And you compare those returns with uh, the returns that you would get in terms of uh, your children getting high levels of education and when the returns to education is going up. So our hypothesis is that uh, you see these returns at home being higher than the returns from the market. And so it's a very rational decision to stay at home rather than go and work uh, when you have much lower returns in the market. And so there's a story here in terms of the structural transformation that we have seen. Whereas, you know, when you look at the golden hypothesis, uh, the reason you see an increase in women's labor force participation along with educational attainment is that, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the structural transformation is happening at the same time as this educational attainment of women is going up. So the opportunities are becoming available to them. But if you don't have the same story in an Indian context where the opportunities are not becoming available, then you're going to stay back because the returns uh, at home might be better than the returns you see in the market. And uh, uh, so, so that's, that's the hypothesis that we have. And I think what is important here is, and maybe you'll ask me this about the social norms next, is something that we build on in terms of the role of social norms in addition to looking at the home productivity effects, uh, when these social norms on the gender division of labor are binding, then uh, even, at, so then at higher levels of education, when the returns uh, are going to, in, are increasing much more, are improving much more for women as opposed to men, yet we do not see a commensurate improvement in the labor force participation of women. And at that higher end, it seems that it is the social norms which are binding, which are keeping women back at home uh, because their primary duty seems to be in 
engaging in home production activities rather than being involved in the market. So it's a combination of two factors. You have a home productivity effect, which seems to be working uh, most strongly at the lower and the middle education level. And uh, in addition to the home productivity effect, social norms which become more binding uh, at the higher education levels uh, because there might be some status also attached to women staying at home or there might be some costs uh, in terms of uh, social costs attached to your wife going and working out, which is in some sense reflecting on your ability to take care of your family, the male's ability to take care of their family, essentially. Okay, great. That was wonderfully clear. So just to restate exactly what you just told me, women's education has risen in India. And what that has led to is both an increase in their productivity at home, but at the same time, it's not necessarily increase the opportunities that women with a moderate level of education might have outside the home in right. part because of India's limited manufacturing employment. Right. And as such women and households choose to have uh, to specialize in domestic work rather than market work. Right. And at high levels of education, um, social norms are such that even though there are opportunities for women with high levels of education, um, households prefer again that women simply work at home, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very well. Okay, so and you develop, of course, a theoretical model to uh, to sort of bring together all these different forces in a single framework, right? Now, yes. what is the evidence that supports your theory? Okay, good question. <laughs> so, what is the evidence that supports this? So, if if you look at the theoretical model, what we are doing then <clears throat> is we are, it's hard to test this uh, in terms of a reduced form analysis, right? Where you have some sort of an experiment or uh, an exogenous shock, let's say, either to, uh, to, to norms, for example. Uh, which might shock meaning a sudden change in norms, which yes, might yes, suddenly a sudden change, right? A sudden change which can which you can exploit to look at what happened before and then what happened after, and then you can see uh, how the time allocation might have changed as a result of that. So what we are doing in our paper is uh, what is called a, a, a something that maybe macroeconomists are more used to rather than reduced form development economists, which is uh, we get these parameters in our theoretical model, right? Which tells you about, which tell you about uh, the, the factors or these parameters which determine the labor supply, right? So they could be the elasticity of substitution of time between men and women. Uh, what is that home production function? What are the determinants? What are the inputs that go into it, right? And uh, using, uh, so what one can do then is to, uh, uh, to calibrate that uh, function in terms of the values of those parameters using the data. So we use the time use data that we have for India, which unfortunately is available only for 1998, which is a bit dated. Uh, unlike, you know, in developed countries where you have uh, regular, for instance, in the US, you have the uh, uh, a panel 
of time use data which is collected at the individual level and which has produced wonderful research, very informative, influential work. Uh, but we uh, have to use, yeah, so that's what we rely on the 1998 data on the assumption that uh, there might be some changes in levels, but if you look within households, the allocation of uh, the, the distribution rather may not have changed dramatically. And using that data, then you can uh, calibrate as in parameterize these different uh, uh, parameter values. So what is the elasticity of substitution uh, and so on and so forth. And then uh, using the data from the NSS again, so both the time use data and uh, then seeing the employment data from the NSS uh, to then try to see, to fit the model uh, uh, what given these parameter values, are we able to reproduce the U-shape between education and labor force participation that we observe in the data? So basically you take the model, the model gives you predictions of what the labor supply of the wife will be and what the labor supply of the husband is going to be. And so then using the values that you are calibrating, you are going to try and see whether the theoretical models predictions will match or overlay the u-shape that you actually observe in the data and so that's what we try to do because it's not uh, and and then from there you can back out whether your theoretical model is correct or not so if you're saying that a home productivity matters uh, and that social norms are binding at higher levels of education more than at lower levels of education, then you should be able to reproduce the observed U-shape that you see in the data as predicted by the theoretical model. And so that's exactly what we do because it's not possible in this context to look at or to be able to do what is a causal analysis, right? Or a reduced form analysis unless you are running an experiment which is somehow trying to change people's social norms. And, uh, and, and, that's, and, and that's difficult to do, right? Because you can't design RCTs around that. Uh, but what we do interestingly also is that we try to fit this model with the UK time use data. And we show that uh, the home productivity does not matter as much in the UK context and social norms definitely are not binding. So we see this difference and the model does pretty well fitting the UK data uh, as well by telling you that, you know, these norms are much more binding in developing countries, in countries which are transitioning from low income to middle income and so on, uh, rather than in countries which are developed. So that's the exercise that we do in terms of uh, you know, bringing the theory uh, and matching it with the data that we observe. So it's uh, a different approach from doing a causal analysis. Okay, great. And and so basically the, the punchline is that the, the data seems to be consistent with the theoretical model, having uh, basically estimated all the different forces that go into... Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay, great. And... Just to ask one follow-up question, is it the case that these norms seem to bite particularly strongly in India compared to other developing countries? Does, does your model also explain why India is an outlier relative to other similarly 
situated countries or is that a sort of a step for future research? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Why does it bind more in uh, India than in other developing countries? Um, and uh, so when we look at other middle income countries, as I said, India is an outlier. Uh, so there is this work um, that, uh, you know, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Bharat Ramaswamy has done where he looked at uh, using the NSS data of that uh, women spending time at home in terms of watching TV or just recreational activities is so is a status building for the household. So men uh, or husbands rather would attach value to the women not doing anything or cons consuming leisure, for example, uh, because that builds the status of the men uh, of the of the male in the household uh, by reflecting the fact that. Uh, they are providing enough for their family and the family is able to uh, enjoy these recreational activities, which would include also participation in community uh, meetings and going to religious functions and so on and so forth. Right. So uh, I think when I think of, you know, like the other middle income countries that we have, uh, for example, a comparison would be with Bangladesh. Uh, where you see uh, an improvement in women's labor force participation for a country which is pretty conservative, uh, but for whom also the GDP per capita is increasing. But what is different also there, as I pointed out earlier, is this tremendous increase that you see in the manufacturing sector in terms of opportunities that women have, especially in the garment sector, right? So the labor force participation of women has increased tremendously because of this uh, significant increase in the garment manufacturing which is catering to the uh, export market and uh, then it comes back to the point about structural transformation in india that we haven't had that kind of structural transformation because of which again the returns that you see uh, from staying at home are better than the returns that you would get in the market. And we shouldn't forget that in India, 95% of the women who are working are in the informal sector. So what do we mean by the informal sector? It's just that they're self-employed in some activity. They have no formal sources of work, which means that they don't have any benefits, health benefits, social security benefits, and so on, right? And safety concerns as well. Uh, because you have to travel to work, if it's going to be far away from home, you need transportation services, so on and so forth, right? So I think there's a host of factors which makes the returns in the market much lower because there are these social costs along with the fact that the right kinds of jobs and good jobs, right? When we, when we talk about women working, why is it that we should, I, I always find it difficult to think of when people say, oh, women are not working and that in itself is a bad. I don't think that is the correct way to look at it because women not, not working might be actually welfare enhancing, right? Because if they were working, they would be working in jobs which are unsafe, which may be discriminatory, which may not be providing them any benefits and may be making them work long hours with very little pay. So if they are being staying at home, they must be making some decisions which are rational in the sense that 
your benefits at from being at home have to be higher otherwise you would go out there right and you would go out so so the worry is only if it is welfare reducing and i'm not sure that that's the right prism to look through because women staying at home might be welfare enhancing given the structure of the economy we have as of now with nine more than 90% of women in informal sector jobs um yeah probably you know for those women who uh for whom it's uh, only if they're destitute and really desperate they would be going out to do these kinds of work and so if they are withdrawing and staying at home because the because they 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 uh, you know these as as economists would call it returns are higher at home then that's welfare improving right right and i so i think this is like a nice segue into the next part of our conversation which is given the fact that there are these structural constraints exist as well as the the existence of these social norms um the task then in some sense is how you can improve uh women's lives given that they are not necessarily participating in market work at the same rates right and so that's sort of the second strand of your research in this particular stream and can you tell us a little bit um about well basically the, the idea is that women do a disproportionate amount of cooking in the developing world and to put it very simply how is it that women in rural areas cook yeah so uh, i think this was uh, you know linked to the and uh, the, the talk that we just that i just gave uh, where we are trying to understand uh, how we can improve women's well-being within the household within the domain of the household given the norms as they exist and the fact that they are allocating a significant chunk disproportionately so of their time to uh, household chores so when we look in rural areas then women are so our data for instance where we're looking at the amount of time uh, households and the primary cook of the household which is almost uh, always a woman spends on collecting firewood then uh, what we are finding is that uh, on average in um, the previous uh, week uh, uh, the household different members of the household or in total would have spent about 10 hours in a regular week collecting firewood you know you have to go to the forest it takes you half a day you collect all these twigs you come back it's about like one or two days of your time which is gone and out of this uh, 10 hours about uh, uh, 80% of it is time that is spent by the women so uh, you are you are uh, so 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 that's a significant proportion of your time is also unsafe right going to the forest collecting firewood uh it's also very laborious activity uh similarly when it comes to collection of cow dung or making cow dung all of these solid fuels which are used for cooking within the household both in terms of the number of trips which are made for collection of fuel as well as uh the so both on the extensive margin as well as the hours that are spent women are disproportionately spending a large amount of time in the collection uh of these uh solid fuels and then when it comes to cooking because they're cooking with the solid fuels 
it takes approximately about double the time to cook with solid fuels than it would with clean fuels like LPG or with electricity, right? So if we were to look at it in totality, then let's say uh, you are as a, a woman might be losing about two days per week in collection and in the, you know, the number of additional hours that she might be spending uh, at home cooking with solid fuel. So that's number one, right? So you have this disproportionate uh, time burden. The second is that when you are cooking with the solid fuels, and you are the primary cook, the woman is, so then there's inhalation of all the smoke that is coming out of the chula. Uh, and so again, the adverse health effect is disproportionately, the burden of that again is disproportionately heavy on the woman. And also very often on the children in the household because the children or especially young uh, infants might be with their mothers when they're cooking. And uh, so the young in the household, uh, the women in the household are disproportionately likely to be uh, affected in terms of the health due to smoke inhalation from solid So there are two uh, factors because of which the welfare of women in the activity that they are uh, expected to be engaged in fully as opposed to men in the household, their welfare is likely to get reduced in terms of uh, not just their physical health, but also their mental health, uh, because uh, cooking cannot, in uh, using solid fuels cannot be a pleasant activity with that heat, with that smoke. Um, it's, uh, it will be very distressing uh, work, uh, plus the collection of the firewood, which is again physically very taxing. So what we, uh, 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 have done is uh, we've ran this randomized control trial in Indore district over the past couple of years, which started in 2018, uh, to uh, uh, first of all run an information campaign on two fronts. One is making households aware of the uh, adverse health effects of using solid fuels and also increasing the awareness about the LPG subsidy that is provided by the government to all uh, consumers who have a legal connection of uh, LPG, uh, uh, which essentially reduces the out-of-pocket expenditure that the household has to incur on refills of these LPG cylinders. And uh, so this is a cluster randomization and where villages are assigned to one of these treatment groups or to a control where no information is provided. And we essentially leveraging the existing public health care system through the accredited uh, social health activists or the ASHAs uh, who are the frontline health workers in the rural areas, uh, which would essentially allow us to see that if this program was to be scaled up, can it be effective? Uh, and that would allow it to essentially be scaled up also rather than artificially imposing uh, a, a research group uh, parallel to the existing pub, the public health system. And uh, very interestingly, so uh, what we find is when we collect the 24 hour time use data, very detailed time use data of these primary cooks. And we also ask them questions related to their emotional status 
and the feelings that they have during the last meal that they cook and we do just a propensity score matching or just mean differences we find that women uh, if they have access to lpg are more likely to enjoy leisure so it's approximately about 30 minutes more of leisure per day and uh, they are uh, less likely to have the severity rather of the negative emotions so for example frustration or anger or helplessness that they might feel at the time that they're cooking is significantly lower if these households have access to lpg and uh, in very preliminary analysis that we have done of the effects of our intervention what we are finding is that this intervention does have uh, translate these uh, mean differences or the effects that we see in the propensity score matching into uh, potentially causal impacts so which says that if you provide households information about how uh, the subsidy uh reduces their out of pocket expenditure uh on lpg and how the adverse health effects can have implications for all members of the household and not just the primary cook including you know the adult or uh, the uh, the aged in terms of uh, affecting the cardiovascular health uh, increasing the incidence of tb and lung cancer there are behavioral changes that the households uh, uh utilize in terms of uh, you know uh, making more regular usage of lpg even if uh, they do not increase the refill usage uh, the consumption doesn't go up but in the subsidy when you also provide in addition to this the subsidy information the refill usage goes up and that in turn then translates into better welfare and uh better psychosocial well-being of these primary cooks as well and so uh essentially the idea of the study is to say that uh we must given the constraints given the norms that exist there is a significant amount of improvement of women's welfare that can be affected through improving the technology of home production uh women often use technology which might be primitive which might be not efficient and that can have an adverse effect on the welfare of women and there is much that can be done in order to induce households to shift the technology to more efficient uh methods and in this particular case to cleaner fuels which has implications for indoor air pollution but also the ambient air quality so there are these huge externalities that get generated as a result of that so it's not just the family which is benefiting but when you think of it holistically then it is the ambient air quality also that get affected uh so so just to summarize what you just told me uh at the moment women in india like elsewhere in the developing world use often cow dung or uh, or wood for example to to do cooking at home this is an extremely laborious and time intensive activity and it's also extremely bad for human health and so we might use 
new technologies to mitigate the effects of uh, the adverse effects of using these traditional cooking methods. One of which is uh, known as the Ujwala program in India, which is a, a large program to give households LPG stoves. But so far, uh, while the program has reached many households, the adoption um, has been relatively limited. Is that correct? So, so households are not using right. the program as much as you would expect, in part because they don't know about the adverse health consequences and because right. of the complex subsidy design, which is hard to comprehend and understand. And so what you do in, in this experiment is that you give people information about both uh, the adverse health consequences as well as the subsidy. And what you find is that um, A, that households that, uh, that women who have access to LPG stoves in general report greater well-being. And B, once you give people information, there does seem to be some movement towards adopting these technologies at higher rates. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well summarized. And, and so, and so in, in the future, we need to have more research and, and better targeted policy interventions that are aimed at increasing information, increasing knowledge, and perhaps also reducing uh, financial barriers to access to such programs, correct? Yes, yes. I think what we find is essentially that the salience of the financial constraints um, is uh, much more uh, prominent uh, in terms of a barrier to the regular adoption of clean fuel. And uh, since at least the government of India has had, uh, uh, has, be, has been uh, implementing the subsidy program for a very long time now, uh, there is not much that is required in order to make the subsidy more comprehensible. Uh, but it's not just comprehension, but it's just it's also the design in the sense that it works as a cashback program, which means that households which are liquidity constrained may not be able to purchase this refill even if they if if they want to because uh, they don't have the liquidity uh, because they have to purchase it at the market price. So there are ways in which you could design the subsidy program such that the uh, they, the amount that they're paying out of pocket upfront is uh, taking into account the subsidy rather than paying the market price because the market price varies a lot. Like, uh, you know, it could go up to 900 rupees per cylinder in one month and it could be 600 rupees in another. And given the average income of these households of around 8,000 rupees per month in rural areas, uh, these are significant expenses. So uh, there are ways in which subsidies can be designed, taking into account these constraints that households have, the liquidity and the credit constraints that they face. Uh, because unfortunately, the way the subsidy is designed now, it seems that uh, households which are better off, who should not be benefiting from these subsidies are the ones who are benefiting because this is a universal program. So it's not just going to poor households, uh, it's going to every household in uh, the country. So the, the government also has a program called Give It Up campaign where they, uh, you know, they ran a, they've been running a campaign where they've been requesting where the prime minister uh, sends a message asking uh, people to give up on the subsidies so that 
uh, it re releases the you know uh, the financial capacity of the government to be able to uh, uh, benefit or provide uh, access to the poorer households so if the if it were the case that the richer households if if this becomes means tested the program becomes means tested um or you have some criterion for uh, getting this subsidy then it would it, you could potentially increase the amount of the subsidy also if it is only going to the poor households which would again potentially have a significant impact on the take up of this technology so if you were in charge would you give these away for free to poor households you mean the lpg cylinders yeah. yes. <laughs> no i don't think you would give uh, i i don't think that's a solution i don't think that's a solution to the problem the reason being that you know there this uh, there are oil marketing companies which are in a sense they are psus they are public sector units but they can't go in the red by giving all of this for free unless the government covers that cost right uh so what you are saying then is that if you were to give this for free then uh the government would have to find the fiscal space to be able to uh to pay to the oil marketing companies because uh they work as any business right but uh what one can do is instead of giving it for free which might be not possible fiscally is to uh, have a scheme of provision of credit which is easy credit and also something as simple as uh paying the subsidy up front so that it gets deposited in your account before you make the purchase or exactly at the time you're making the purchase so that you know you pay only that 500 rupees which i was mentioning earlier uh because the amount of the uh, the the out of pocket expenditure is more or less fixed whereas if you have to pay the market price then some day, some months you're paying 900 rupees and other months you're paying 600 rupees and then you are waiting two or three days for the money to get deposited into your bank account when you don't have easy access to banks uh or banking services um it's hard for you to access that money when you might need it on a day to day basis many of these households live on daily incomes as we are seeing with the migrant crisis right now with covid right that for them their daily wage is how they survive because they don't have any savings and that is essentially what the liquidity constraint is every day i work i earn and i consume my food whatever else is required for my subsistence so um yeah so i don't think it makes sense to give it for free uh, you know just just uh, primarily because that's not fiscally prudent uh, of course there could be other reasons for example there could be lots of leakages as you know we are famous for having lots of public programs where lots of things are given for free and nothing reaches the poor right so you definitely don't want to get into any another one of those especially as we enter a new era of scarcity and all these trade offs become even more salient absolutely right yeah and as the fiscal constraints of the government are becoming very very tight yes 
and so of course you do know that you know within the uh, a part of the package uh, that the government uh, released uh, as a result of this covid crisis was also giving free lpg cylinders uh, but then people said that uh, when you don't have enough food to buy or food grains right what are you going to cook with that free lpg cylinder so one lpg cylinder or something like that was supposed to be given free uh, but even then there are some statistics suggesting that the take up has been very low so then again it's pointing like you know even if you made it free there are other complementary inputs so to speak which are required for you to use that lpg cylinder right which means you have to have food grains you have to have some sources of income so that you can purchase food that you can cook and so the shock that we have right now in terms of incomes and the shock to people's employment is being so adverse that people are you know on the brink of slipping back into uh, poverty uh, or going below the poverty line uh, and and that's something that we have to address right now very yeah. urgently on that sober note uh, professor freedy i think we can conclude our conversation thank you very much for joining thank you so much gautam thank you have a great day bye thank you bye